Again, good evening to you. Psalm 98, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And it's always just terrific to not only hear the Word of God, but then to read along on our own. There's something wonderful about seeing the truth with our own eyes. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. Psalm 98, it's interesting, we're in a little section of Psalms right now where there is a, uh, the theme of the Psalms, not every one of them, but sporadically so, there is this looking forward to the day when the thousand-year reign of Messiah was going to be established, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And uh, the psalmists were looking ahead to that day, even as we look ahead in kind of a different way with a fuller revelation that we have as Christians. But it's even a theme in the Old Testament where people looked at the world and recognized that it is, uh, it, it is fallen and it is in need of proper leadership. And uh, they knew what it was to have failed leadership in the Old Testament on every level, whether it was political with their kings or whether it was their priests or their prophets as well. And so there is this theme always in the heart of God's people of looking forward to the day when the Lord would return and establish his kingdom on the earth. And so this is a repetition that goes on uh, in the scriptures because it's something that we constantly need to be reminded of, that this is not the end of human history. This is not how it ends. But one day Jesus is going to return, called his second coming. He's going to establish a thousand-year reign upon the earth. Following that, it will give, away, give way to a new heavens and a new earth. But this is the Old Testament version of basically what Jesus wants to have be uh, a part of our uh, focus on a daily basis, and that is of the Lord's return. And for us, the understanding of the rapture. Jesus said to his, his disciples when he taught them uh, how to pray, they asked what manner, and he said, well, after this manner pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a, a prayer for the second coming of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom on a daily basis. And more specifically for us as Christians, the, the next step in that whole process is called the rapture of the church. And so uh, even in the Old Testament, there is this uh, emphasis by God toward the fact that God is in charge of human history. It really is his story, as the uh, old saying kind of goes. And it is going to march uh, forward to his uh, predetermined uh, end. And so Psalm 98, it begins with this praise to the Lord kind of for his coming uh, millennial reign. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. And so here is the psalmist. He's uh, really looking through a glass darkly. But prophetically, he's looking to the day in which Jesus rules upon the earth, the Messiah, Jesus rules upon the earth, and he rules with an absolute power. He has all the authority and all of the power, but it's coupled with a, uh, a, a heart that's perfect. It's interesting, they've got that whole uh, revolution that's going on in Egypt right now where the newly elected president is wanting to establish an Islamic state formally, uh, in Egypt, and he took and uh, 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 did an end around their parliament and established unprecedented powers for the president in Egypt. And then he tried to console the people by saying that, it, that he would not abuse these powers that he was uh, bringing to himself. Well, it would be the first dictator that never did. We can't handle power in the way that Christ can handle power perfectly and beautifully. So this celebration, we recognize that we need righteousness. We recognize we need someone who is powerful in that position, but who can't be corrupted by the power? Well, that's the Lord Jesus. And he goes on then 
to give the Lord praise, speaking of this coming reign, uh, for establishing his righteousness in the world. For the Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. And so he's going to rule with power. He's going to rule with perfect righteousness. Our Lord Jesus is going uh, to do that. And he has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so uh, he uh, uh, speaks of the time when uh, the Lord will take his place of, of, as king not only over Israel but over the whole world. And I say, hip, hip, hooray, uh, let's have it happen. And so he continues, though, in verse 4, with the establishment of the kingdom. It's going to be a time of celebration for the whole world, that thousand-year reign. Imagine Jesus. I mean, you think about, as we read about him in the Gospels and as we come to know him in our personal relationship, imagine him ruling over this earth. That, that wisdom, that love, that, just that perfection of decision-making, the pers- perfection of perspective, the, just everything will just be so right and so loving and so perfect. And, and also he <clears throat> cries out, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, the whole earth will celebrate that he, is, uh, he reigns, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets, there it is, Dennis, with trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. And so everyone, it's going to be a time of just praising and worshiping the Lord. And then not only will people be uh, excited and celebrating this reign of Christ, but nature will as well. Let the sea roar and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills be joyful together. And so uh, creation is personified by the psalmist here in order to uh, express the joy of the whole earth, all of creation, not just man, over the reign of Jesus upon the earth. So you've got the green movement going on today. I don't pick on it necessarily. There's good aspects to it, and then there's other aspects to it, some of them bad. The big thing is the greed. Everybody gets the pigs come to the trough to just grab money, and they aren't any more cons- the only green they're concerned about is the U.S. dollars that are coming out with no discernment at all. But there's nothing wrong with having a concern for the earth. And when the Lord comes back and as he rules on this earth, it's going to be the greenest time in human history. The whole earth, remember in the book of Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> talks about all of creation groaning because of the fall. And so creation does groan. And, and, but when Jesus returns, whatever this is going to be about in terms of his reign, and, and here the, you, the world is being used as it's intended to be used for the good of mankind and the blessing of all mankind, not just for commercial Babylon and not just for all of these other things. The earth is, is something that does not have to be abused and destroyed in order for it to provide for the world in the way that God intends. The reason that it does today is because of bad leadership and because of the corruption of the heart of sinful men and women. But all that's going to change when the Lord comes. So, I mean, he, it's the, don't put the whole ecology movement down and all. Of course, that was a big thing when I was in high school, too. They're still working on it. But, um, but you know, the, the earth is going to rejoice at the reign of of the Lord as well. Before the Lord, and then uh, verse 9, odd place to put a verse, for he, has, uh, he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. So there is this rejoicing in our hearts. I know it's in, in all of our hearts as Christians tonight that the Lord is going to rule and he's going to reign upon this earth. And of course, that's going to be preceded by the rapture. And so this reminder that better days lie ahead and all of those better days are wrapped up in the things of the Lord. And then we come into Psalm 99 and Psalm 99 is a celebration of the Lord's holiness. I love the fact that the Lord is holy. 
Uh, sometimes people think of, you know, it's like holiness has gotten a bad name. And I don't know where it's gotten a bad name. And sometimes even in the world, p- people think of holiness as some kind of a bad, terrible thing that is a, a undue restriction that just causes a person to miss out on all human potential and all joy in life. But holiness is a beautiful thing. It's, it's a wonderful thing that God is holy. They had that uh, pop song a, a while back uh, that talked about uh, what if God was a slob like uh, one of us, you know. And people were really excited about that thought. Some people, Christians, kind of looked at it a sanctified way and looking and saying, well, Jesus became like one of us. That's super sanctification of the song. I was happy that when I came to the end of my search as a person for the meaning of life and for God, I was very, very happy that when I came to know God, the God of the Bible, that he was not merely a a bigger and stronger version of my disgusting self, but that when I came to know God and the God of the Bible, that to find out that he is, was, and is a holy God, that he is completely different from me and my fallenness and everything about your fallenness, And the beautiful thing about this God is that he is not only holy, but he is a God who is then willing to share his holiness with us. One of my favorite uh, phrases in all of the Bible, we looked at it last week very, very briefly, it is the phrase, the beauty of holiness. It's spoken of in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The holy life is a beautiful life. It's a liberating life. It's life how we're intended to live. And holy means to be separated. It means to be different, but in a, different in a way that looks like God. It's not just, you know, doing something goofy to my exterior in order to be different from everybody else at school or everybody else at work. This is a difference that's meaningful, that's God-like. And so I, for one, celebrate the holiness of God. I am glad that he is holy, and I was glad that my search ended in the discovery of a holy uh, God. And so this beautiful psalm that is a praise to his holiness, and the phrase, he is holy, is repeated uh, three times in the psalm. So that makes it pretty simple for us to understand what the the psalmist is uh, rejoicing in. The Lord reigns, and let the people tremble. He dwells between uh, the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. And so here is the praise of God for his nature. When it talks about God's name in the Bible, and in that Hebrew culture, your name represented your nature. So here he is, he's celebrating the nature of God. Praise the Lord that God is holy. What if there was not this God of the Bible? What if it was all, what if the only gods in the world was Allah? Or the Eastern gods? I don't mean it as a cheap shot. Think about it. Because the Bible says concerning every person in this world that, number one, all of us worship. Every person in this room, every person in this world, we worship something. We're made to worship. We're going to worship. You say, what do I worship? The master passion of your life. Where does your discretionary money go? Where does your discretionary time go? What are your interests? What gets you out of bed in the morning and excites you? It's very easy to identify what our God is, who our God is in life. And for a Christian, it's the true and the living God. But the Bible also teaches that we become like the God that we worship. So you look at the kind of person. Jesus said wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom earns the right to be recognized as wisdom on the basis of the quality of the person that it produces. Look at the quality of person that the Word of God in Christianity and the power of the Holy Spirit produces across all of the broad diversity of mankind all over the world. 
It produces a changed life. It produces a miracle without exception every single time. Produces a joy-filled life, a meaningful life, a life that uh, is productive and is a blessing and good not only to God, but good to a husband, good to a wife, good to a family, good to a society and a city and a neighborhood. And so here's this celebration again of this God, that He exists in human history, that He is exactly as He is. Sometimes when I pray, but I I bring it up just, I'm so thankful that the God of the Bible is the God that He is, and He is as He has described Himself in His Word. I've been a Christian since 1980, walking with the Lord since that time, settled the issue of His Lordship in my life at that time. And I have walked with the Lord during those decades and tried to grow in my relationship with Him, my knowledge of Him in the Word of God. There is nothing about the description of Him in these Scriptures that I would change. Now, how many things can you say that about in in life? But it can be said of the God that we worship. He is... uh, He is great. His name is awesome. He is holy, and we are thankful for that. And then he goes on to uh, praise the Lord and and bless his name uh, for not only his nature, but also for what he does. The king's strength also loves justice. He's a God of justice. He does what is just. You have established equity. In other words, he's fair. You have executed justice and righteousness. He's righteous in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Has he ever made a bad decision in your life? You say, yes, I think he, I'm right in the middle of it. No, you're not. You're just in the middle of seeing the full scope of the beautiful thing that he's doing. The wonderful thing about growing a little bit older in the Lord is now you've got this longer history where you look back and you see every decision he has made has been perfect. might not have seemed like it was perfect at the time, but his ways, they're righteous, they're fair, they're just, they're excellent. We give him praise for not only who he is, but what he does. And then the last part of the psalm is praising the Lord for... Uh, his holiness represented in his forgiveness of sinners. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord. He answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave to them. So Moses and his brother Aaron... Uh, Moses, of course, being Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel, Aaron being his brother who was the first high priest of the children of Israel, Samuel, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. They loved God. They had a respect for God, a reverence for God. But an interesting thing about each one of them, no matter how great they were, they're just like every other person, and they did fail in their service to the Lord, and they did sin in their life, and they were in need of God's forgiveness. And so here's this praise to the Lord for His holiness represented in forgiveness. You answered them, verse 8, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives. And so God is holy. You say, how is He holy as a forgiving God? Nobody forgives In the whole wide world, there is no God. (laughs) There is no other God but this God. But there's no God in the whole wide world that claims to be God, that forgives the way that this God forgives. But he did not forgive at the sacrifice of his holiness. He found a way to forgive us at enormous sacrifice to himself, through the sacrifice of his son upon that cross. This God of the Bible found a way to forgive sinners and remain holy, to be both the just, just, remain just, and still be the justifier 
of sinful man, is how Paul put it to the Romans. We give him praise for his holiness tonight and the fact that he is a forgiving God and that he has found a way at great expense to himself to provide people like you and I with forgiveness and that it was on his heart to do so. And it makes him different from everything else in the whole wide world. No one forgives like our God. Not at that sacrifice, not that completely, not that willingly. God is unique in this. Though he, you, it says you took vengeance on their deeds. And so, yes, God forgave each of them, but there were consequences to their sin. The psalmist wants us to know. And that's kind of the straight betwixt two that every preacher hits in the teaching of God's Word because we want everyone to be strong in the grace of God and in God's forgiveness. And all of us should be unquestionably strong in that. But at the same time, the psalmist wants to make sure that the person that's sitting over here in the corner doesn't look at it and say, oh, I can go out and do whatever I want and God will forgive me. Yes, He will forgive us with repentance and we ask Him for forgiveness, but the psalmist reminds us there are consequences uh, to that. There were consequences in Samuel's life for his sin. His sin was that he did not rein his sons in. He was a tremendous godly man. Samuel, one of the greatest character studies that you can do in the Old Testament. But when his sons began to commit sexual immorality while being high priests under Samuel and they began to take advantage of people and use that particular position for gain, he did not boot them out of the position and say, forget it, blood, no blood, you don't get to represent God this way even if you are my son, not under my watch. He didn't do it. And he paid a price for that. Moses, of course, in striking the rock a second time, Aaron with the golden calf thing, with the, seriously the lamest excuse in the entire Bible. Listen, we just took, put a bunch of gold together, threw it in the fire. This calf jumped out. A golden calf just jumped out of the fire. If somebody said that to me, I'd say, come here, come here, come here, come here. Why I order? You think I'm going to believe that? And yet he thinks that excuse is going to work with Moses and it's going to work with God. Of course, every excuse is about as lame that we bring before the Lord. He said, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for the Lord our God is holy. And I'll just say it on your behalf tonight. Lord, we give you praise for your holiness. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you are. We praise you for your dealings in our life. This is a holy God, and we, it is our privilege to know him and to serve him and to obey him. And then a Psalm 100 is one of the purest psalms of praise in the whole Bible. And I think we've had a little taste of it already here tonight. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, the psalmist says, uh, all you lands. And so we see again the exuberance of the worship of God in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. The worship can take the form of a joyful shout, serve the Lord with gladness. And, uh, and so you say, well, what does service have to do with worship? All service is worship. All services, when it is done properly, it is an expression of our worship toward the Lord. We are ascribing worth to God and serving Him this way in saying, God, You are worthy of my life being laid down for Your purposes, whatever those purposes might be. And, of course, nobody wants anything done for them where somebody does it grudgingly. Do you? If somebody comes and does you a favor and then they do it grudgingly, they don't, they don't do it with gladness. What do you say? You say to them, listen, don't do anything for me. Thank you. If it can't be done with gladness, I don't want it to be done. And so here is this great, beautiful thing, shouting to the Lord uh, and, and, and ascribing worth to God, worship to God in song, also in our service, come before His presence with singing. And then He gives the reasons why. Know that the Lord he is God. He is worthy of our worship, our praise, our exuberant worship for the simple fact that He is God. The two great 
uh, truths in the universe, two great rules of the universe. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not Him. And the distance between Him and us is infinitely great. He has, ma- he has shortened that distance in an amazing way. It's just the distance of the cross because of Jesus' shed blood that allows us to have access to Him anytime, day or night, anywhere in the world. And so sometimes we get used to the kind of access that we have. It's fabulous. We should get used to it. But there's the recognition that He is God and He alone is God. He's worthy of our worship just on the basis of that. And it is He who made us and we not ourselves, not we ourselves. And so the worship of the Lord as our Creator. We are the creation. He is the Creator. And then praising Him for the fact that we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Praising Him for the fact that He has made a way to bring us into His family, to be His people. Now you think about that. Just look, look around this room. Just do it just discreetly. I mean, what if they had like a, like the NBA draft? They're only going to bring the best in to training camp. Look at who God brings into the family. Look, he's willing to associate his name with, call his own. I mean, it's just amazing. And so we give him praise that we are his people, and he's the one that caused it to happen, allowed it to happen, and that we are the sheep of his pasture, to just praise him for the fact that he is our shepherd in life. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and then to his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. And then another set of reasons for the Lord is good and he always is. He never fails to be good. His mercy is everlasting. You say, how do you know? I know Dave Abbey, our sound man. That's a, something nice was said about Dave, and I've got to bring him back to reality. <laughs> now, we're an example of the fact that his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. One thing you'll never hear God say is, oops. You never want to hear a dentist say that. Remember the old line from My Fair Lady? I'd be equally as willing for a dentist to be drilling than to ever let a woman in my life. Why in the world would a person memorize that as a young boy? <laughs> I was just a little kid in elementary school when that movie came out, but it had a, had a deep impact on me when he... He said that, boy, he's got some baggage, that man. Ends up married and the whole thing and all. Anyway, where was I? Oh, this is truth endorsed to all generations. He never says, oops. He never, never has to change this truth of the Word of God. There are no revisions. There are no, oh, oh boy, some scientific discovery or some whatever. We've had to gut the book of Psalms and take out 30 Psalms because they've been disproven by science or disproven by history or disproven by human psychology or disproven by human life and experience. Never. The Word of God always is revealed as truth. Way before we got all as smart as we think we are today. And we praise the Lord for the fact that His truth endures forever because our life is built upon truth, not only in terms of eternity, but in terms of today. What a privilege it is to be able to raise our children in the things of the Lord in truth, to live our life in truth. It's a fabulous blessing. And so David was thankful for all of these blessings from the Lord, beautiful expression of praise to the Lord. And then Psalm uh, 101 is a beautiful psalm. It is a psalm that speaks of 
David's vow. It is a psalm of David, as you see. His vow to live a holy life. I will sing of of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way or a mature way, he shall serve me. David said, I'll surround myself with that kind of person. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house, and he who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all of the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, this Psalm of David, Psalm 101, is vowed to live a holy life. It's an amazing psalm because it not only expresses David's desire to live a holy life, but it also provides some just amazing and practical instruction on how to achieve a holy life. We know that holiness is a good thing, to be separated unto God. That's what holiness means. It means to be separate. It means to be separated from the world and its plans, its sin, its directions, its everything, and to be separated now to God. To my life to be used now for his purposes. So this separation is away from one thing and then to another thing. So separation or holiness is a beautiful thing. But the psalm goes even further than that in that it describes to us how to achieve a holy life and then having achieved a holy life, how to maintain a holy life in an unholy world. Now, that's pretty valuable stuff for a person that wants to be holy, and that's what the psalmist uh, gives to us uh, here. And so he lists this, David lists several things that are necessary to produce a holy life and then to protect a holy life. In other words, what the Holy Spirit is saying in Psalm 101 is that holiness in a holy life doesn't just happen. It's not like you just sit under the tree and the apple hits our head, we're holy, and then it's done. just happened. took no effort, no decision-making. My will wasn't involved in at all. And the writer is saying, in the fallenness of this world, holiness doesn't just happen in a person's life. When you see a person that is holy, who is Christ-like in their attitude, in their actions, in their speech, and you look at that and you say, oh boy, I wish I had a personality by nature that they have to just be like that. Nobody attains holiness in this life and then maintains a Christ-like life without putting effort into it because it's to go against the stream of everything that's going on in life around us. And so the, the psalmist here gives us insight into the practical decisions that need to be made in life in order to experience holiness, the beauty of it, and then to maintain holiness in our lives. And I just would like to uh, head through them and just make notice of them and then just allow these things, there's 12 of them here, just allow them to search our life tonight who you are, what you are in private, what you are in public, what you are in terms of speech and relationships, all these different things, and to just say, Lord, tonight, just take this psalm of David and just put my life to the test of holiness tonight, and and then whatever fails that test, Lord, I want to turn from that, repent of that, and then do what is right in that area. Notice, first of all, in that first part of uh, Psalm 2, David said, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. And that tells me that David had a desire for holiness. Do you have a desire for holiness? Not every Christian has a desire for holiness. 
but it has to begin there. Every Christian who is yielded to the Holy Spirit and desiring to grow is going to have a desire for holiness. A lot of people don't have a desire for holiness because a lot of other things have choked out their Christian life and other priorities have come into their life and a lot of just messed up decision-making. So that's what the psalm is about, to just stop and say, do I even have a desire to live a holy life? And so we need to bring the want to to a holy life. The beautiful thing is that God supplies us with the want to. Paul wrote uh, to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, and he said, For it is God who works in you both to will to do, giving us the will to do and the power to do of his good pleasure. He gives us the power to live a Christ-like life, but he also provides us with the will to the desire to live a Christ-like life. But he won't force it on us. He supplies the will to us, but we have to want the will to do it. And so David begins with this desire for holiness. And then notice second in verse 1 that that desire for holiness comes out of a love for God. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. And so this desire for holiness came out of his relationship with the Lord, his love for the Lord. It was in response to the Lord's mercy, to the Lord's justice, that is, his righteousness. Because of what God had been to him and that God had done in his life, now he wants to live uh, a holy life. Christianity is a response. John wrote in his first epistle and said, we love him because, that's a reason word, he first loved us. All of Christianity and the highest motivation for holiness and obedience in our life will be to respond to how good he has been to us. And the reason that that is the greatest motivation a person can have in their Christian life for Christ-likeness and holiness is that motivation will never ebb. It'll never dry up. It will never go away. Because God will always be so good to us, so faithful to us, so loving to us that we will always have ample and unquenchable supply of motivation to respond to him in obedience to and a desire to become like like Christ. And so this response, the desire for holiness coming out of a love for God. God, you've been so good to me. I can't believe the life that I get to live every day. I think about the person that I would be tonight if it weren't for you. And then I put it up against the quality of the life that I get to live every single day. My heart is is free. My mind is free. My life is free. My influence upon other people is good. Lord, I would know nothing about this apart from you. I want to become more and more like you so that when people see my life, they can have hope that you'll do in their life what you've done in me because you're no respecter of persons. And then you notice also in verse 2 that he David was a man for whom the fullness of God's presence in his life was important. He cried out to the Lord there, Oh, when will you, when will you come to me? And that's the cry of a child of God who does not want anything in his life to in any way hinder his intimacy with God. And again, that's one of the greatest protections against unholy living. We talked about it last week. It takes a passion to conquer a passion. It isn't enough just to hate sin more, but the key to a holy life is to love God more, to where I value the intimacy of that relationship and more than value it. I come to depend upon it for my survival and my sanity and my peace to such a point that I can no longer live without it. So to jeopardize that relationship and that intimacy is off the table because I can't make it without that relationship being what it is uh, in, in, in my life now. 
And so here was this this beautiful thing where the presence of God, that intimacy of relationship meant something to him, and holiness was a way of protecting that. In verse 2 as well, he's uh, declared that he's careful. He was careful to make his home a holy place. He said, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. You know, we don't always have control over what's put in front of our eyes or put before us in this world. We can't control the world. We can't control every cubicle at the workplace. We can't control oftentimes what's on, up on the television screens and the business that we walk in or what kind of music is playing in the mall or these different kinds. Of, we, there's so much that we can't control. But what we can control is our homes. And it's important for every single one of us as Christians to have some place, and our homes are the place that is a refuge from temptation. The whole world is just, it's Pleasure Island. <laughs> With, is, that, was the, is that the Pinocchio story? Yes, thank you for that authoritative. I needed an authoritative yes. I always get those rides mixed up. So the whole world is like that. And we have to have a place where we can come in, close the door, and the house does not represent a continuation of the temptation of Pleasure Island within the house. So we ask ourselves, we're allowing this to search our life. How safe is your home for you spiritually? Is it a holy place? Is it a place that encourages you to holiness? Is it a place of respite and refreshment and a break from the unholiness of the world? David said, I'm going to make sure that my house is. And it was a key to holiness within his life. And then in verse 3, he was careful about what he set before his eyes. He said, "I I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. That's a great thing to make into a placard and then just stick right on the television screen or the computer uh, uh, um, uh, monitor. Somebody told me recently about this show called Shark Tank, so I've watched a couple shows of it. How many of you know what Shark Tank is about? Just a quick show of hands. Okay. Okay. A few are enlightened. So it's these businessmen and women and they're millionaires and billionaires and they've made and so people come in and they're very very savvy in this field it's very educational i mean it's an interesting way to look at how people think and all that kind of stuff so people bring in their ideas and they pitch their ideas to um uh, these people and then to see if they want to use their own money to invest in the idea to advance it blah 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 i won't bore you anymore with it in fact i don't know why i'm talking about it right now But this would be a good thing to pitch for a Christian market. Some kind of a neon blinking, I will set no evil before my eyes, that when the TV, the remote, every time it goes on, it starts to blink, just to remind. Every time you change the channel, it blinks to come on. I figure I'm going to get pretty rich off that idea. (laughs) You can say you knew me when. But he doesn't want to see wickedness, doesn't want to explore evil or to explore, gain the knowledge of evil. I think sometimes we have to be careful as Christians. Sometimes even pastors will do it. We all have to be careful with it. So I want to to understand the culture so I can relate to it and minister to it. (laughs) You don't have to understand the culture. To minister God's word. That's why I'm so thankful for Pastor Chuck Smith. Here he comes, and God uses him, one among many, but in a powerful way, how he used Chuck in the Jesus movement. He'd never smoked a cigarette in his whole life. He can't even reach down and pick up a cigarette, but that's been put out by somebody bracing themselves before they head into the funeral or the, win- or, or the, the wedding 
before they head into the church because his mother told him never to touch a cigarette. So when he goes down to pick it up to make the grounds look nice, he's got this inner turmoil that goes on. He's never had a drink in his life. I don't know that he's ever had a cup of coffee. Okay, now we've gone from preaching to meddling, haven't we? (laughs) But the point that I'm making is this, is that that isn't required in order to relate, and who says we're called to relate anyway? People people come... When you've got 18,000 channels on the television and you've got millions and tens of millions of sites on the computer, and you've got 18 movies at the movie theater in any community at any given point in time, and by the time a person walks into a church, you think they want your dumbed-down version of hipness? I don't think so. They're looking for God, and they're looking for truth, and they're looking for reality. And so here's this beautiful thing about David, careful about what, how he protected the eye gate. Because the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. We do reap what we sow. And we're seeing that as a nation. We think that the nation and the people, First Amendment right, anybody can watch anything, anybody can do anything. Yes, we have the right. I'm against government coming in and them policing that kind of thing in the sense that they will become as corrupt with that power as as anyone will. It has to be a self-policing thing. You cannot just watch everything, engage in all of these things, sow to the flesh, and not have it come out of an individual's life and then into the culture. And so this, this safeguard that he set upon his eyes and upon the eye gate to his mind and his heart. And then he says something interesting there in verse 3. He says, I will hate the work of those who fall away. And what he's basically saying is he purposes that he will not come under the influence of the backslider. And I think that that's something that's important for us to think about today. God loves the backslider. God wants the backslider to come back to him. God works by his Holy Spirit every day to bring every prodigal back to him. But we also live in an age when so many who call themselves Christians are backslidden and they are lukewarm and they are purposely carnal. And then we can just come to accept that as an acceptable version of Christianity and no longer be appalled by it. No longer, we just shrug our shoulders related to it instead of looking at it as something that is a terrible thing. It's a God dishonoring thing and it's something that we are to avoid. David hated it. He did not hate them. He hated what the backsliding and he hated what they abandoned God for. And he determined that he would not come under their influence because he did not want to abandon God for what they had abandoned God for. You think about, you think about, and talk, we'll just go even into the unsaved world today. Think about our culture today and the things that people reject God over and one day standing in front of him. To stand before the true and the living God and one day say, I rejected you and the worship of you for pornography or for money or for a second home or for power or for recognition or to engage in this sin. What a terrible, small, little, pathetic thing that's going to... You're going to have God Almighty on one side of the scale and this little, pathetic, nothing of a thing. And it's like, you missed all, you missed all of this, not only in this life for eternity, for that? What were you smoking? But it's the culture. It's the demonic influence of the culture that does not encourage people to think about 
the decision and to see it in the big picture. And so David looks and says, listen, I know lots of different people that have walked away from God for a lot of different things. I do not want them to be an influence in my life. Why would he do that except for the fact that he recognized he could be susceptible to the same thing and he wanted to protect himself from it because he valued holiness in his life. In verse 4, he said, a perverse heart shall depart from me. And a, the word perverse there means a crooked or a twisted or perverted. It talks about wickedness there also in, in verse 4. I will not know wickedness. Wickedness there refers to bad or wicked or evil. And David there, he determined that he wouldn't allow those kind of people near him. He wouldn't allow them to have an influence in his life. So we're allowed to search our life tonight in terms of our peers who we make our influencers. Have you introduced wicked people now into your life? It's always easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. Be careful about who we make our influencers. David's the king. David has this long relationship with God. David is amazing in his relationship with God, and yet he's careful. And these Small details that are protect his holiness. And then you notice in verse 5, the psalmist determined that he would separate himself from the slanderer. So he protected his eye gate in an earlier verse. Now he protects his ear gate from anything that's unholy. And I don't know if there's anything more unholy than slander. Where a lie is told about a person to ruin their name and their reputation. I think Christians, rightfully so, should be offended by profanity, should never come out of our mouths. But I'll tell you, profanity doesn't even do remotely the damage that slander does in this world and the damage that slander does in the body of Christ. It's a terrible curse. The only person who really, I think the only person who listens to slander and is eager to listen to slander is a person who has not yet been the victim of slander. And then one day when you are, then you'll realize the pain and the damage that it had been doing all along, this tasty morsel, the book of Proverbs puts it, that tastes so good in our mouth or in our ear, but it goes down into the innermost being. It affects our lives. And David says, I'm not going to put myself around that kind of person. I'm going to protect my ear gate for the sake of holiness. And then the psalmist determined in verse 5 as well that he would separate himself from the one who has a haughty look or a proud heart. The Bible says, we say that, uh, you know, uh, pride comes before a fall. That's how we speak of it in the culture. It's actually worse than that. That's an encapsulation of a, of a, a proverb. The Bible says that a haughty spirit comes before a fall and pride comes before destruction. And David said concerning proud and haughty people, he knew that there's always a fall coming with those folks and he would keep himself separated from them. And then in verse 6, on the positive side, you say, oh, praise the Lord. On the positive side, the psalmist is careful to surround himself with godly People. He said, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. And so there is this careful David, despite his relationship with the Lord, his love for the Lord, his knowledge of the Scriptures, his holiness, all of this, he was careful to surround himself with godly people. It isn't enough in the world that we live in if we're going to protect holiness in our life. It isn't just enough to separate ourselves from unholy people or unholiness. We need to be in contact with an unholy world and bring a gospel to that. But it isn't enough to separate ourselves from unholiness. We need to further separate ourselves to people who love God and people who can stir us up, iron sharpening iron, to even greater greatness in our relationship with God and in our service to the Lord. 
And so David said, I'm going to follow, surround myself with that kind of person. Do you have anyone in your life as a Christian that challenges you spiritually? You say, when I'm around him, when I'm around her, it wants me, it makes me look at where I am in the Lord, not with condemnation, but it makes me realize I want to be that. I want to grow there. And those of you who are a little older in the Lord, listen, we're looking for heroes. We know that Jesus is the hero. But don't you throw away, I mean, in the in the light of the culture and everything that's going on all around us, don't throw away examples for us. It's important for us to have people in our life that we walk away from and we say, I learned something there. I would have never handled that circumstance in that way. That would have never entered into my mind. And yet how they handled it was so Christ-like, I can't believe it. I want that person to be an influence in my life. And that's a beautiful thing. And today, one of the great things, there are bad things about technology, but one of the great things about technology is we can put ourselves under the influence of deeply spiritual people. And God can even choose them to influence us by virtue of media, by virtue of streaming online or downloading sermons or downloading input on MP3s. And so David was careful to surround himself with that kind of person. And then in verse 7, he was careful not to let a liar be around him. He didn't want them to have a place where they would influence him or his decisions. And then in verse 8, David really, really decisively and ruthlessly, he cut off uh, all that was an influence for wickedness or evil in his life. Early I will destroy. And early has the idea of every single day, every single morning. This is something he did on a daily basis. Early I will destroy all of the wicked of the land that I may cut off all of the evildoers from the city of the Lord. And so every day was begun with by David and uh, was begun with a fresh commitment to holiness in his life and, and holiness related to all that was under his oversight and that he had responsibility for. I was listening to a sermon uh, to pastors uh, recently by Ravi Zacharias, who is a tremendous uh, apologist in the body of Christ. And he had an illustration related to Billy Graham that I don't know if he had read it uh, or what his source was. But he declared that, and said of Billy Graham's daily prayers that every single morning one of the prayers that Billy Graham prays to the Lord is, Lord, let me not today ruin what you have taken decades to build into my life. That's the heart of David. That's the heart of the Holy Spirit. And that's the heart of a man who is honest about holiness. There is that recognition that apart from God and apart from building these kind of perimeters and protection to holiness in our life, we could in five minutes throw away what God has taken decades to build into our life. And that's healthy. That's a good thing to pray. Lord, let me not today ruin what you have taken decades to build into my life. That's a man who appreciates holiness, what it means for him, but what it means to the reputation and the purposes of God and how God had used him in the same way that we have the same concerns in our life. And so this Psalm 101 is really just priceless as a psalm, as a checklist. You know in the privacy of your own heart as you go through check, 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 you say, wow, I'm 12 for 12, fabulous. We won't pat you on the back because then it's the pride thing and you're, you're struck out somewhere in here. 
But maybe you look and you say, you know, there's two or three in here that I'm on real shaky ground and I'm not treating holiness as something valuable in my life. I'm playing fast and loose with it. And this Psalm 101 is intended to identify it. So tonight we can take the time to just stop and say, all right, this is valuable to me. I am going to protect it. And I'm going to choose in this place before I leave here tonight to decide to make changes in those areas of my life. And that's why the psalm is in the book of Psalms. And when it accomplishes that in our lives, it has done the wonderful thing that God desires it to do. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Lord, again, we thank you tonight for the, just the broad diversity of subjects that are addressed in these psalms. So much to give you praise for, so much to be thankful for, Lord, so much to celebrate in you. And we thank you, Lord. Again, as we pray so often, we thank you for what you have delivered us out of. And we thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the life that you have delivered us into. We thank you that your word is truth, that you are always good, that your mercy never runs out. We thank you that our lives are a witness and a testimony to these truths, that they're not just words on a page, Lord, but our life has become a witness to them as well. And we owe all of that to you, Lord, and we give you thanks for that tonight. And we give you our praise and we give you our worship. Thank you, Lord, tonight for being who you are and how good you've been to us, Lord. We recognize it. We don't recognize all of it, but we recognize a lot of it, and we're grateful. And we give you praise and thanks in the name of the one who has made all of it possible and that perfect, peerless, beautiful, priceless name of Jesus. Amen.